You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On the morning of December 18, 1996, a groundskeeping crew at Pleasant Valley Memorial Park in Annandale, Virginia, was driving through the peaceful cemetery grounds. Pleasant Valley Memorial Park at 8420 Little River Turnpike is not the kind of cemetery with row upon row of erect headstones. Rather, it has an almost park-like feel, with grave markers flushed with the grassy ground scattered widely throughout the verdant field punctuated by stone benches and some mausoleums. This was why the two men could see right away that something was amiss. A person was lying on the grass near a family crypt, close to an area of the park where recently deceased infants and children lay at rest. The area actually has a little sign that reads Babyland, but this person was an adult, and she had not been there the previous evening when the park closed at 4 o'clock p.m. The groundskeepers thought she must be asleep. They went over to the woman who was lying on her right side and gingerly prodded her foot with a toe. When she didn't move, they decided they'd better call in some help. They went to the park's main office and called the Fairfax police around 9 o'clock a.m. I'm going to be up front here and tell you that the case files from back in 1996 don't indicate that the police talked to these groundskeepers a whole lot. So it's not clear whether they noticed three glaringly concerning aspects of the woman lying on the ground. She lay on a sheet of plastic spread out on the grass. She had a clear plastic bag over her head, taped tightly around her throat and lying limply on her face. And she was dead. Fairfax County, Virginia medics responded to the scene, removed the bag from the woman's head, and checked for vital signs. There were none but it was noted that she was still slightly warm. Homicide detectives Richard Perez and Mike Headley arrived, took in the tableau, and started to draw some conclusions. The woman on the plastic sheet was not lying near any particular grave, although she was closest to a family mausoleum. A tiny eight-inch-tall boxwood tree sat atop the sheet near her body. It was decorated in the spirit of the holiday season, with glass gold balls, tiny gift ornaments, and red bows. Its festive nature was incongruous with the somber scene it accompanied. The detectives noted that the woman had headphones, which were attached to a portable cassette player, over her ears inside the plastic bag. In the cassette player was a tape bearing a recording, played all the way through, of Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks's comedic mock interview, 2,000-Year-Old Man. 
Near the woman's body lay a pale greenish-gray REI knapsack that contained more tapes. Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Inside the backpack were two empty glass juice bottles, not the same brand, along with a white flask-shaped plastic bottle and an empty clear plastic cup. The backpack also contained a roll of masking tape, just like the tape found around the woman's throat. And oddly, it also contained a child-sized pink Minnie Mouse fanny pack, which was empty. The pack was worn and had been mended with safety pins and masking tape. Bifocals with translucent frames, presumably belonging to the deceased woman, were not on her face but in her backpack. The last item in the pack was a gauzy red scarf. The problem was there was no identification anywhere on the woman's body, nor in the backpack. Officers rifled through the dead woman's clothing and, sure enough, in her front coat pocket were two letter-sized envelopes, one marked for the coroner and one marked for the cemetery. Each contained two $50 bills and the same note, which read, Deceased by own hand, Valium and alcohol. Prefer no autopsy. Please order cremation with funds provided. Thank you, Jane Doe. The detectives observed that these notes appeared to have been printed off a computer, and they found two more printed notes, but the case files do not indicate where exactly these items were found. The first read, quote, Now I lay me down to sleep, soon to drift to the eternal deep. And though I die and shall not wake, sleep sweeter will be than this life I forsake. Investigators have never been able to determine the author of this verse, which has echoes of the well-known children's prayer, Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and so on. The second typed verse stated, quote, It is by honor and not by gold that the helpless end of life is cheered. This is a quote attributed to Pericles in his funeral oration commemorating the dead during Athens' losing war with Sparta. Heavy stuff. The self-professed Jane Doe was removed to the coroner for a cause of death determination. At the morgue, all her clothing was removed and inventoried. It included a teal all-weather Eddie Bauer hooded jacket, size medium, a navy blue Classiques and Tiers sweater, size large, a red Classiques and Tiers sweater, size extra large, a red Classiques and Tiers sleeveless silk shirt, size petite large, navy blue Classiques and Tiers knit wool pants, size large, knee-high stockings, a white support bra, no brand evident, white fruit-of-the-loom underpants, size 6, and black loafers, size 7 medium. The deceased woman also wore some jewelry, which consisted of a pair of circular clip-on earrings, a small gold women's guest watch with a mesh band, a 14-carat gold ring with four jade stones, and a metal beaded chain around her neck with a medic alert, no code, DNR, no penicillin. The coroner estimated Jane Doe's age at between 50 and 70 years old. She was white and just 5 feet tall, weighing 157 pounds. Her hair was short, cropped, quite curly, and a copper color that was deemed to be its natural hue. Her fingernails were painted red, and in one of her unique characteristics, Jane Doe had a 22-inch scar on her abdomen that ran from her lower belly all the way up to her sternum. The coroner concluded that Jane Doe had indeed taken her own life just as she said. No autopsy was conducted pursuant to her express wishes, 
but she bore all the signs of having asphyxiated from the lack of oxygen due to the plastic bag over her head. And remember that a plastic bottle, cup, and two glass juice bottles were found in her backpack, and her notes stated that she had consumed alcohol and taken Valium, presumably to anesthetize herself. The plastic bottle found in her backpack, which I presume was empty or its contents would have been tested, was confirmed to smell like alcohol, possibly brandy. A toxicology report found that her blood alcohol level was 0.14, and she had indeed ingested diazepam. Time of death was a rough estimate, but when Jane Doe was checked by the responding EMTs, her body was still warm. She had been dead for mere hours, putting her death at some time in the very early morning. Detectives started to put together a theory as to what had happened. They surmised that Jane Doe came to the park in the early morning darkness, or possibly after dark the night before. Everything was meticulously planned, and in her backpack she carried everything she needed. She spread out the plastic sheet, perhaps the ground was damp. She set up her little Christmas tree. She put on her headphones and listened to the comedy recording as she drank her brandy and juice. She took her Valium. When she was done, she put those things neatly back in her backpack and took out the plastic bag and the tape. She put the bag over her head and taped it tightly around her throat. She put the tape roll back in the pack, and then she lay down and let the drug, brandy, and bag do their work. As you can imagine, quite the investigation ensued to try to determine who this Christmas tree Jane Doe was. She had no receipts or paperwork whatsoever in her pockets or backpack that could help police identify her. At first, investigators assumed that she must have some tie to the cemetery, possibly to the mausoleum which was closest to her body. But they could never establish a link between her and anyone buried at Pleasant Valley Memorial Park. The park is right across the street from the Annandale campus of Northern Virginia Community College, so detectives looked into whether the school had any missing students, professors, or administrators. Nothing. The location was not one that investigators felt someone would have stumbled on or selected at random. It was a bit out of the way. You had to know it was there. You know your favorite sparkling water, Bubbly? Well, guess what? It just got better because Bubbly is growing its family. That's right. Bubbly now has Bubbly Burst. Bubbly Burst is a sparkling water beverage with extra fruit flavor. An extra burst of fruit flavor for an extra burst of fun. There's zero sugar added. It's low calorie. It's the refreshing bubbles that you love in Bubbly, but... It's 1% juice. Each sip is filled with a flavorful refreshment that adds a burst of fun and happiness to your day. And just like choosing amongst your favorite child, it's impossible. There's so many good flavors. Peach mango, triple berry, cherry lemonade, watermelon lime, pineapple tangerine, and tropical punch. I can't choose a favorite. But don't take my word for it. Try it for yourself today. Find Bubbly Bursts in a store near you. The Washington Post ran a number of articles about Christmas tree Jane Doe over the years, and some of this information comes from those thorough pieces. The Fairfax police released a drawing of Jane Doe to the public in hopes that someone will recognize her. Her death photo, taken by the coroner and showing pulmonary edema blood running from her nose and possible vomitus on her face, was too unsettling to release to the general public. But the drawing was a good likeness. 
They compared her physical description to numerous missing persons cases in the national capital region to no avail. They took her finger and palm prints and compared those to those in the national database. Nothing. Dental impressions were taken and a dental exam conducted, with unique features entered into the NCIC database, along with Jane Doe's other physical characteristics, as case number U-989-549-567. And a radiologist reviewed x-rays of Jane Doe and found no distinctive breaks. The scar on her belly was thought to possibly be from a C-section, although typically those scars run horizontally. Detective Melissa Wallace of the Fairfax Police, who solved this case, told me that she does not feel the scar is from a C-section, but it's unclear what type of procedure would have caused a vertical scar this large. I wondered whether whatever led to this scar was the reason Jane Doe specifically said she did not want an autopsy. Perhaps she simply could not bear to think about going through that again. After all the physical examinations were completed and a blood card drawn, Jane Doe was cremated. For unknown reasons, the DNR pendant necklace was cremated with her. Fairfax County detectives maintained the cremains in their office for the next several decades. A lot of time and effort went into attempting to identify Jane Doe through her attire and possessions. The cassette player was a common GE brand battery-powered portable device. No luck there. Her clothing, other than her coat, was a fairly expensive brand, and detectives looked at upscale stores like Nordstrom and Saks Fifth Avenue to try to track down purchasers. They tried to trace her backpack, which was REI brand, largely located on the West Coast at that time. Jane Doe's eyeglasses were examined by optometrists and determined to be prescription trifocals from Belgium. The do-not-resuscitate penicillin pendant was a puzzler. Detectives came to believe, after much digging, that Jane Doe was not issued the pendant by any program in the state of Virginia. And the question remained, why would she bother warning people about an allergy to penicillin? Jane Doe clearly put much thought into what she was wearing when she took her last breaths. Why would she choose to wear this medical necklace? The only thing I could come up with was perhaps she wanted the DNR pendant in case someone found her too soon. Maybe they would respect her wishes and leave her be. The mango and peach juice bottles in Jane Doe's backpack were somewhat unusual imported brands, Mistu and Loza, and investigators tried to research who distributed them. With the Belgian glasses, it was thought that perhaps Jane Doe was European. Pictures of her jewelry, including the gold guest watch, the earrings, and the 14-karat gold ring with jade stones, were posted on the Internet. Nothing. It's unclear whether the original investigators explored the transportation avenue of the investigation. By that I mean, how did Jane Doe travel to Memorial Gardens that night? She left behind no car, no subway or bus ticket, no taxi receipt. The park is on the four-lane Little River Turnpike, which does not have sidewalks, and at the time was not near anything of note other than the college across the street. If she nonetheless walked there, she must have lived somewhere in the vicinity, which would likely connect back to her when her residence was discovered to be vacant. If she took the bus to the stop near the park's main gates, surely a bus driver would recall a diminutive redhead traveling alone in the middle of the night. But no one came forward. In 2000, a computer-enhanced colorized sketch of Jane Doe was produced with assistance from Nick Mech. 
Detective Richard Perez, who was one of the initial detectives on the scene four years earlier, told The Post in 2000, quote, What makes it so frustrating is this isn't a case where we're dealing with skeletal remains. This is a lady that somebody should recognize. If she's a drifter, she's the best-kept drifter I've ever seen. Detectives continued to follow up on leads in the case. In 2007, Jane Doe's mitochondrial DNA profile was sent to the FBI for entry into the CODIS Unidentified Persons Database. No hits. Christmas Tree Jane Doe was also entered into NamUs, UP number 6279, and eventually was included on the Doe Network website. Nothing happened for a long, long time. In January of 2022, Fairfax Police Department detectives learned about the work Othram is doing to identify John and Jane Doe's using crowdfunding. Since the police department did not have resources to expend on a non-criminal Doe identification, they decided to go this route. The department sent samples of Jane Doe's blood taken by the medical examiner during the course of his examination of her body to Othram Labs. Othram listed the case on their DNA Solves website seeking donations to fund the necessary testing to prepare a profile suitable for forensic genealogy. The Fairfax investigators were aware that there was a lot of public interest in the Christmas tree Jane Doe case, and they suspected it would be funded quickly. Sure enough, the costs associated with the casework, about $5,000, were paid for within days by individual donations and a substantial contribution of more than $3,000 from an anonymous donor. Othram set to work. Its analysts used their proprietary forensic-grade genome sequencing to develop a comprehensive genealogical profile for Christmas tree Jane Doe. Then, forensic genetic genealogist Carla Davis set to work trying to construct Jane Doe's family tree. Meanwhile, Fairfax investigators informed the public what they were hoping to do with Jane Doe. As reported by the Washington Post in April 2022, Major Ed O'Carroll, head of the Fairfax Police Major Crimes Bureau, said, quote, Somebody deserves answers, and we don't know who that somebody is, but we're determined to find out. By all indications, it's not a criminal case, but it's an open case. We're hoping the latest in technology that did not exist 25 years ago can help us find those answers for those she left behind. In May of 2022, Othram notified Detective Wallace that a man named David Meyer was related to a genetic associate of Jane Doe's who was in the database. He could be a sibling. They suggested that the investigators obtain a reference sample from 88-year-old David, who was in an assisted living facility in Virginia Beach at the time. Detective Wallace spoke with David's daughter, who had some good information for her. She said her father David had a long-lost sister who had disappeared years ago. This sounded very promising, so Detective Wallace drove down to Virginia Beach and met with David. She showed him the colorized photo of Christmas tree Jane Doe, and he said he had no idea if that was his sister. He hadn't seen her in 30 to 50 years, he guessed, because she had cut herself off from the family. David's daughter provided Detective Wallace with the name of David's sister, Annette, who lived in Arizona, whom, she said, would have more information. Detective Wallace then obtained permission to get a reference sample from David, and a buckle swab was taken. It later confirmed that he was a full sibling of Christmas tree Jane Doe. David's daughter texted the colorized picture of Christmas tree Jane Doe to her aunt Annette in Arizona. 
Immediately, Annette responded that the color drawing was 1,000% her older sister. In order to confirm the identification, Othram overnighted Annette a DNA kit, and she self-sampled and sent the kit right back. Testing by Othram confirmed that Jane Doe was Annette's long-lost sister, Joyce Marilyn Meyer Summers. I was shocked, just stunned, Annette said in an interview. The family had been looking for her. They were still looking for her a year after her death. I'm relieved to know nothing terrible happened to her. It sounds like something she has been planning for a long time. She told the Washington Post, quote, The way she planned it out, that was her. She was very careful. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Joyce Marilyn Meyer Summers, originally from Davenport, Iowa, was born on July 20, 1927. She was the oldest of five children of Arthur and Margaret Meyer, three girls and two boys. When she died in 1996, she was 69 years old. By the time she was identified, her parents, her sister Mary Jo, and her brother Lawrence had all passed away. We don't know much about Joyce's life. The little we do know is based on a few old newspaper clippings and details Joyce's siblings have shared with the media. A photo and blurb in the May 15, 1945 edition of the Davenport Daily Times tells us that Miss Joyce Meyer of 2009 Lorton Avenue, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Meyer, was May Queen at Immaculate Conception Academy's annual May Day event. In December of the previous year, Joyce was lauded in the same publication for winning first place in the Immaculate Conception Poetry Contest. She came out on top of 250 entrants and won $5. A quote from the Daily Times says, Miss Meyer's poem, Three Gifts, was chosen because of the simplicity and beauty of its meaning. Of course, this calls to mind the brief, pithy poem that Joyce was found with, suspected to be her own work. After graduating from Immaculate Conception, Joyce matriculated at Iowa State University and graduated in 1949 with a degree in journalism, a part of the Division of Home Economics. While at college, she was a member at Alpha Delta Pi Sorority and an honorary women's journalism fraternity and was on the staff of The Homemaker and the Iowa State Daily Newspapers. She then moved to Los Angeles to take an editorial job with Seventeen Magazine. She was very creative and very smart. She was artistic, her sister Annette told the Washington Post. Joyce initially lived with an aunt in Los Angeles, but for unknown reasons, she left the job at 17 and took a job as a schoolteacher, teaching second grade at a Catholic school. Joyce did not have a background in education. The teaching job was difficult, her sister told the Post. Quote, she had 60 second graders and she didn't have a background in education. She was very meticulous staying up until the wee hours to do lesson planning. Joyce married in Los Angeles in August 1960 when she was in her 30s. She and her new husband, Richard Reddy, lived in Vancouver, British Columbia. By the time of her marriage, Joyce was working in technical publications at Hughes Aircraft in Culver City. 
It's unclear whether she continued to work after her nuptials. Her marriage to Richard didn't last long, and we don't know how Joyce ended up in Seattle, but she married James E. Summers there in 1962. James was reportedly an engineer for Lockheed Martin. Joyce ended up divorcing James in 1977. In her letters to Annette, Joyce didn't even mention this union, which seems strange given the marriage lasted 15 years. I wonder whether they separated long before their actual divorce. Sometime during the 1960s, Joyce reportedly sought psychiatric help. It seems that she had issues with her family and the way she was raised. Annette said that the therapy resulted in Joyce's estrangement from her family because she blamed her parents for her issues. Her father had passed away in 1956. This directly from the Washington Post, quote, At some point in the 1960s, Annette said, their mother traveled to California for a 24-hour confrontation session with Joyce, in which Joyce accused her mother of being a terrible parent. It was just awful, Annette said. It broke my mother's heart. After the demise of her second marriage, Joyce moved to a trailer park in Arizona, which she did not like. In the 1980s, her four siblings visited her there, and she begged them to build her a small house. They couldn't oblige, and, quote, after that visit, she dropped off the face of the earth, Annette said. Joyce's family never heard from her again. In the 1990s, Annette and her brother Larry tried to locate their older sister. Larry went so far as to travel to Arizona and go to the trailer where Joyce was living when they last heard from her. She was gone, but some of her things remained. In the refrigerator were several copies of a book, authored and self-published by Joyce, entitled The Target Child. It tells the story of her childhood trauma inflicted by her parents. The back of the book jacket includes a studio portrait of Joyce taken at Photo Arts Studio in L.A. in 1960, although the book was published in 1968. It has to be said that it's impossible to know, absent the unearthing of more records, witnesses, or evidence, whether Joyce was a victim of abusive parents, as she claimed, or whether she was suffering from some psychological disorder that imbued her with these feelings. Her sister Annette states that neither she nor any of their other siblings perceived any abuse growing up. Whatever the case, Joyce's emotional state was such that she severed all ties with her family, and when she took her own life, she ensured that she would not be linked to her Meyer roots. She signed her suicide note Jane Doe. She removed any traces of her identity, no wallet, receipts, or unique possessions other than the untraceable Minnie Mouse fanny pack. If she left behind a home filled with personal items, it has never been connected to her. It's possible she was living under an assumed name, anxious for her family not to find her. But Joyce's family says they did actively work to find her. After the trip to Tucson in which they discovered Joyce's trailer abandoned, Larry and Annette hired a P.I. to track down their missing sister. They assumed she had joined a cult or some other group that discouraged contact with the outside world. The P.I. tentatively traced Joyce to the East Coast in the 1980s, but the trail was spotty and uncertain. He never located Joyce. The family says that they reported Joyce missing to the authorities in Arizona when they discovered her vacant trailer, but no police reports confirmed this. Fairfax police ran Joyce's name through some databases that are tied into residential, tax, and utility records to try to find out where she was living if she was living in the area. One address for her showed a townhouse on Massachusetts Avenue in northwest D.C. 
1996, she was listed as living on Van Dorn Street in Fairfax. Again, it's not known whether any landlord or neighbor noticed the sudden absence of an elderly, red-haired female tenant in December 1996. The building that had that address no longer stands, and a mall has been built in its place, so records are lost. Detective Wallace told me she finds it odd that with all the publicity the case received back then, when Christmas tree Jane Doe was found, with her photos shown in the news and on the papers, no one came forward with a tip about who she was. It's as if she left zero footprint behind. Detective Wallace tried to tie up some final loose ends by gathering some more information from Joyce's sister, Annette. But Annette didn't have much to add. She wasn't sure what the origin of the large scar on Joyce's abdomen was. She didn't believe her sister ever had children. She wasn't able to identify the jewelry her sister wore. She had no information about the Minnie Mouse fanny pack. It will all remain a mystery, just as Joyce wanted it. Major Ed O'Carroll issued an agency press release that stated, After decades of wondering what happened to their loved one, Joyce's family is finally at peace thanks to the dedicated work of several generations of FCPD detectives, anonymous donors, and Othram. Our detectives never stopped working for Joyce and her family. Advances in technology will continue to help close cases and provide answers to victims' families. When this news of the identification of Christmas tree Jane Doe came out, Some people speculated that it was an invasion of her privacy to reveal her name publicly. After all, she clearly did not want that. She took such pains to cover up her identity. And that all begs the question, why did Joyce want so badly not to be identified? Was it to slight her family? Did she want them always to be searching for her? Or, perhaps, did she want to completely disassociate herself from her roots and project an image of herself that she controlled? a nicely dressed, poetic, high-minded individual of taste and style. It's all unknown. I would think that if her goal was to inflict pain or guilt onto her siblings, then leaving the world as a Jane Doe would not accomplish that. If it weren't for the incredible dedication of the Fairfax PD, her family would never have known what happened to her. There are a lot of questions that I want answers to. How did Joyce get from living in a trailer in Arizona to wearing Classics NTA and and possibly living on D.C.'s Tony, Massachusetts Avenue? Where was she in all those intervening years? And how did she end her life and leave not a physical trace of her existence behind? As for the question of whether authorities should have released her name, I'd say this. Joyce chose to take her life in a public place. She chose to bequeath investigators the riddle of her identity. She had to know that in taking all the steps that she did with the Christmas tree, the cassette player, the notes, the baby graveyard, she was making herself newsworthy. Perhaps the very thing she wanted was for us to be talking about her. Detective Wallace says her department had very pragmatic reasons for pursuing the investigation over all those years and revealing Joyce's identity once they learned it. She told me that detectives felt they had an obligation to Christmas tree Jane Doe's family, whoever they might be, to figure out who she was. And she said that over the decades, the Fairfax PD had received scores, if not hundreds, of inquiries as to whether Christmas tree Jane Doe could be their missing relative. It was important, too, to aid those people in their search for their loved ones by resolving Jane Doe's identity and releasing it. That way, the Meyer family had answers, and others know they need to keep searching.
Joyce's cremains were sent back to Annette after the case was resolved. Thank you to Fairfax Police Detective Melissa Wallace for speaking with me about this case. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizegirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to DNA ID podcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.